Hello everyone, welcome to History of Asia. Welcome back, I should say, for there's been a long silence on my part. No worries, I'm not thinking about quitting, not at all. I've just been dealing with computer issues. As you may have noticed, the sound is different again. It's far from perfect, of course, but I couldn't postpone the new episode indefinitely now, could I? Now, since it's been a while, we should start with a short recap, I guess. Last time, we talked about the eventful reign of Reza Shah Pahlavi, the founder of the last Iranian dynasty. As you may remember, this guy was a true chameleon. He started off as a low-ranking officer in a Cossack division sent by the Russians. Then Persia and Russia both descended into chaos because of World War I and, in the case of Russia, because of the Communist Revolution. Reza was able to use this chaos as a ladder. He took control of the capital without much resistance, and then he made contact with the British, who were now the only remaining great power in Persia. The British intended to use Reza for their own purposes, but once he had the chance, he got rid of the pro-British politicians, and he would start using Soviet Russia as a counterweight. Far from being a tool for either the Russians or the British, he then showed himself to be a nationalist, eager to transform Persia, the shrinking empire, into Iran, a confident modern state. A final irony was that he began his career as a republican, trying to get the monarchy abolished. After this failed, he decided to become king himself. Talking about a remarkable career path. Cossack fighter, British ally, nationalist, republican, king. Imagine that on your CV or your LinkedIn profile. Reza is not an easy man to like. But it's hard to deny that he managed to accomplish things that his predecessors could only dream of. Under his guidance, roads, railways and factories were built. Education and justice were modernized under the auspices of the state. Just as importantly, alien troops were kept at bay. Foreign debt was no longer a millstone around Iran's neck like it had been. There was a strong national army. Tribes were no longer a constant menace. And I'm still forgetting some important things, no doubt. How was it that Reza managed to pull all this off in less than two decades, while his predecessors, the Qajar Shahs, had failed for more than a century? Was it all because he was such an exceptional character, while the Qajars were all suckers? Well, up to a point, perhaps. But there was so much more to it. As often, it was the circumstances that allowed an exceptional man like Reza to rise to power and do what he did. In the previous century, there existed no such window of opportunity. The Qajars could do little more than make the most of a bad situation. By the end of today's episode, you'll understand why. Like the story of any dynasty, however, the history of the Qajars begins with a triumph of sorts. Around the close of the 18th century, the founding father of Qajar, Iran, put an end to a civil war, or rather a series of civil wars that had lasted for generations. They felt they were about to return Persia to its former glory, of which they were all too aware. So they were in no mood for humility. Alas for them, they would soon be brought back down to earth. While Persia had been obsessed with its own troubles, it had lost sight of the rest of the world. But in the meantime, that world had changed. European powers were obtaining capabilities far beyond the reach of most Asian powers, and slowly but surely, 
their zones of influence were encircling the still isolated land of Iran. The Russians were moving southward, washing over Central Asia like the blob, and the British were approaching from the other direction. This was no coincidence. They wanted to create a buffer to protect their all-important Indian colony, and they also meant to block Russia's access to the open sea. They were heading for a collision course, and the Iranians would be trapped in the middle. The Qajars got wind of what was afoot, but having overcome previous challenges, they reckoned they should be able to withstand the onrushing waves. After all, as Abbas Amanat points out, Iran had not lost a war against a Christian nation since the early 7th century. Imagine that. The first encounters with the Russians seemed to signal that their self-confidence was warranted. But that was misleading, for at the time, Russia had been busy warding off a much more troublesome enemy on its western flank, a certain Napoleon Bonaparte. This gave the Qajars a distorted sense of the power balance. Had this not been the case, they might have put in more of an effort to avoid further clashes. The overconfidence was understandable, but it would prove fatal. For soon after the Grande Armée was chased back to Paris, the Iranians would get a taste of what their northern neighbor was truly capable of. As soon as the Russians got serious, the Persians faced a couple of devastating defeats. This in itself was bad enough, but it would turn out to be the start of a long downward spiral that would prove impossible to escape. You might compare the attitude of the conquerors with that of the Allies at Versailles in 1918. Woe to the vanquished! Iran permanently lost its hinterlands in the Caucasus, including the territory of the current states of Azerbaijan and Armenia. You might think that the Qajars would have learned their lesson by then, but a few decades later they went on the offensive once more. This time they vainly attempted to take Herat. This important city had traditionally been under Persian domination, but now it is in Afghanistan, and the reason for that is that the British managed to drive the Qajars out, in humiliating fashion at that. In fact, it is in the aftermath of these defeats that Iran got its current borders. The Iranian realm used to be much larger than it is today. On the plus side, perhaps, this more compact territory must have made it somewhat easier for the Pahlavis to create something of a national state. The loss of prestige that followed from these sobering setbacks was a big deal in itself, but there was more at stake. The Caucasian provinces had been rather productive, so their loss was a blow economically as well. Another Russian demand was that Iranian courts, including clerical ones, would forfeit the right to preside over disputes between Russians and Iranians. Other nations, especially Britain, would soon claim similar privileges. And in time, these immunities would also apply to Iranian associates of the foreigners. European traders would gain advantages over Iranian ones. And the Persians would find themselves discriminated against in their own country. The effect of these expanding concessions would be like that of a slow-working poison, weakening the economy, undermining the tax base, humiliating the crown. There was also an immediate price to pay for the loss against Russia. After their victory, the victors imposed a huge indemnity fine upon the defeated party. This caused problems right away, for it meant that the tax burden on the already suffering population would become heavier. But even worse, perhaps, 
was that this financial setback forfeited any chance of modernization and thereby any chance of mustering a successful resistance against further demands or aggression from Russia or Britain. There is an inherent paradox to modernization that has kept many so-called developing countries from actually developing. Roads, railways and factories don't come cheap, so you need money to build them. But unless you stumble upon an oil field or a cobalt mine, you'll have to raise this money from ordinary civilians. And for this, you need a reasonably well-oiled bureaucracy, backed by a reasonably strong army. Herein lies the catch, of course. Soldiers and bureaucrats cost money too. And if you find yourself confronting powerful foes who have already acquired a higher level of modernization and who are determined to prevent you from catching up, then you are playing a losing game. After a few of these devastating defeats, the gravity of the situation would eventually start to seep in. But the Qajars and their advisors were still unsure about how to tackle this conundrum. Roughly speaking, there were two tendencies. On the one hand, you had the modernizers, whom you might consider the optimists. They felt like it was not too late for Iran to catch up with Europe, but that painful reforms were urgently needed. Whenever a new crisis struck, such people would have the Shah's ear. But then there were those who had given up all hope for their country, or who simply didn't care. They intended to make the most of it for themselves. The latter were usually in a stronger position, and there were reasons for that. The modernizers understood that the reparations were not the only reason for the state's poverty. Far from it. The whole system was at fault. Even apart from any foreign intrusion, Iran had a narrow tax base to begin with. And no wonder, half the people lived like nomads at least part of the year. During most of the 18th century, the land had been devastated and depopulated due to war, starvation, disease and raving bandits. The tax system was rude and opaque too. It's of course ridiculous to regard any acre of land as equally rich for tax purposes, especially in a country as diverse as Iran. The problem is that, from the capital, it's kind of hard to know how much a certain plot of land could or should produce. For this inside knowledge, the state, if you could even call it that, depended on local officials. And those didn't think it was in their interest to share that information. On the contrary, they were very secretive about it. It was plain that they had no intention to render onto the Shah what the Shah considered his. Now you might think that he could just teach him a lesson then, but again, it wasn't as simple as all that. The Shah didn't have much of an army of his own. If he wanted to mete out punishment, he depended on his tribe, on allied tribal khans, on nobles and hired hands. And this meant he couldn't disregard their interests. Centralizing authority was not what they considered a good thing. Similarly, the little money that actually made it to the capital was largely wasted at court. The Shah, the princes and other nobles used an astonishing portion of the public income for conspicuous consumption. To give you an idea, according to Abbas Amanat, no less than 8% of state revenue went to the royal family alone. And even this paled in comparison to the handouts given to the courtiers, the nobles, the tribal leaders, royal guards, etc. In a way, the political class was like a group of parasites that undermined Iran's immune system. There were some advisors, or viziers, who saw that this was something Iran could not afford. 
especially in the face of growing foreign threats. Some of them even convinced the Shah of that, for a time. The problem was that everyone else who had any power saw these modernizers as a threat and loathed them for it. Just as importantly, the vizier had no power base of his own. It's instructive perhaps that, again, according to Amanat, 66% of salaries went to the Qajar elite, while the Divan, the actual ministry if you will, received only just over 3%. Now, for those among you who watch Game of Thrones, I know there are many of you, rather than a prime minister as we know it, this vizier was very much like the hand of the king. As they say in the series, the king shits and the hand wipes. Like with the king's hand, few dare touch the vizier as long as he was the king's favorite. But that support always proved to be fickle. And once it was gone, it was open season on the former favorite. Just like in the series, most hands of the Shah didn't stick around for long if they were so brave as to Hector their master, or try to rein in his worse instincts. Many viziers, I'm inclined to say most even, died on their master's orders, and oftentimes gruesomely at that. The Shahs were, on average, a paranoid lot. The more capable advisors were openly ambitious and dared to talk back to the Shah. This made the king feel insecure and suspicious. For what was to stop these viziers from conspiring with one of these foreign powers, plot his downfall and then put one of his brothers on the throne? In fact, this was another of these cycles of paranoia that reinforced itself. Whenever a vizier was killed, the impressive possessions that he'd always acquired fell to the Shah. This alone made it tempting to get rid of him. There were so many mysterious deaths in high places that Qajar coffee became a byword for poison. Forward-thinking viziers therefore put aside as much as they could for the day when they would need to run or bribe their way to safety. They knew that they would come. In this way, the general suspicion encouraged graft. They also built their own power base, these, uh, these viziers or even made contact with foreign powers seeking protection. Thereby, they proved to the Shah that his suspicions had been founded all along. The lack of independence on the part of the ministry or the divan was a grave impediment to reform. It also proved extremely persistent. Reza Khan's prime ministers were also known for getting locked up and dying an untimely death. And under the Islamic Republic, the relationship between the supreme leader and the president is somewhat comparable to that between the Shah and his vizier. The supreme leader suspects the president of disloyalty and of having his own agenda, often rightly so. All of them tried to build their own power base. Rafsanjani became a sort of clerical oligarch. Ahmadinejad tried his hand at populism. Katami turned to the women, the young and even the West. But once a president loses the supreme leader's blessing, he is toast. This may someday change, but traditions die hard in Iran. If Katami was the equivalent of a modernizing vizier, one who sees that the system needs to change if it is to survive, then the current president Raisi fits the archetype of that other sort, the one that usually lasts longer. The type of advisor who says what the king wants to hear, in Game of Thrones, the most enduring man on the king's council, the man who knows how to serve the king and keeps serving him, explains his long tenure as follows. I don't want to be the most beautiful flower in the garden. I just want to remain in the garden. 
A wise vizier understood that the court and the king were part of the reason why Iran was weak. But a clever vizier also understood that if he addressed the problem of the nobility, he would find himself surrounded by enemies, and sooner or later he would end up dead. If he went even further and brought up the fact that the king himself was part of the problem, he would end up dead sooner rather than later. Better not to rock the boat and enjoy the ride or the garden. Now the problem with that, of course, was that the deep malfunctions of the system were never truly addressed. Modernizing viziers were brought to the fore whenever the crisis became so obvious that even the king could not ignore the need for change, but whenever things seemed to be going a little bit better, or whenever the vizier overstepped the line, or whenever his enemies managed to spread bad rumors about him, the annoying modernizer left the scene and things would go right back to normal, in air quotes. Structural change was only possible if the ruler himself was convinced that it would be a good thing. In a strongman system, the personality of the man at the top truly matters. Say what you will about Reza Khan, but he knew that something was amiss. And of course he would. He came from poverty himself. He had witnessed firsthand the humiliation of Iran's troops. By contrast, the Qajars had grown up in luxury, shielded from reality. What's more, they could only keep their throne by the blessing of the nobles, the tribes and the foreigners who were at the source of the state's troubles and who profited from it. The Shah decided over life and death, but he was just a man, and he could be murdered or deposed too. He could do two things about that, eliminate all those he mistrusted, and some would try to do exactly that, but the other option was to make sure that those who could harm him didn't want to. That included the courtiers, but also the Europeans. They had their ways of making sure that he kept their interests in mind. For instance, the Russians made sure that he accepted the protection of a Cossack guard. This was the closest thing the Qajar Shahs would ever have to an army of their own. And in itself, it posed a welcome counterweight to the power of the tribes, but its trainers and commanders were sent by Russia. So obviously it was doubtful whether the Cossacks' loyalty really lay with the Shah. Another weakness that the Europeans could exploit was money, or rather the lack thereof. Whenever the, whenever the Divan gave up on modernization, in its stead came more cynical or even desperate ways to make money. Like, for instance, giving entire branches of the economy in concession to um, a foreign investor in return for an immediate reward. Officers were also sold to the highest bidder, who could then exploit the population as he wanted to earn his investments back. Not a recipe for good governance, that. But it got so much worse. The most astonishing sellout, arguably, was the so-called Reuter concession. You probably heard of Reuters, the famous news agency. Well, the family business was made big by a Julius Reuter, a British entrepreneur who had hit the jackpot as a pioneer in telegraph communications. So you can tell that this Reuter fellow had a keen eye for business opportunities. The one he got in Iran has been called the worst sellout in history. In essence, he gained a monopoly on developing railroads in Iran for a whopping 70 years. On top of that, he was granted the right to tax and exploit much of the country's resources for his own gain for 20 years. This encompassed the mines, the mills, the telegraph, you name it. 
He even won the right to establish a bank and issue Iranian banknotes. The only thing that Iran got in return was a puny percentage of the gains. Why then did the Shah agree to this? Desperation must have been a factor. He must have reckoned that Iran had no way to muster the needed capital by itself. But perhaps it's also worth noting that there were quite a few bribes involved in getting this deal of the century approved. What is good for the ruler is not necessarily good for his kingdom. Hardly anyone knew about the Reuter concession before it was signed. But as soon as the news got out, the people were furious. So much so that the Shah had to find a pretext to annul the concession on technical grounds. Even the British government had not been best pleased with this move of their subject, not merely because they doubted whether Reuter could actually provide any of the things he had promised. He had neither the capital nor the, nor the expertise for that, but more importantly because they foresaw that it would anger the Russians. Sure enough, the Tsar let the Shah know that he considered it against Russian interests that the British subject would gain control over so much of Iran. But they considered it, for they considered it a key buffer state. If there was ever an upside to Iran's position between Britain and Russia, between these two expanding empires, it was that both, both of them understood that it was in their mutual interest to have a buffer between them. Otherwise, the great game might lead to a giant war that nobody would benefit from, except perhaps the French. The status of a buffer state, however, was a mixed blessing at best. For among other things, it was incompatible with a well-functioning railway system. Trains might facilitate transport and supply of troops between the Russian and British zones of influence, and that was precisely what a buffer is supposed to prevent. The chaotic collapse of the Reuter concession offered the British and the Russians a perfect opportunity to stop Iran from developing any railways for the upcoming decades. The fact that such a vast and impenetrable country could never modernize without trains or decent roads, that was no concern of theirs, on the contrary. It was only after the Qajar dynasty had fallen, the foreigners had left, and Reza Khan had received debt relief from the communists, that he was able to finally build a so-called trans-Iranian railway line. And although this in itself didn't create an economic miracle, it was a necessary step towards modernizing and uniting the country, if only because it was easier for troops to reach the other corners of the land. The bitter irony was that the British and the Russians would invade just a few years after its completion. One of the prime reasons for their intervention was that they intended to use these same railroads that they had prevented the Iranians from building. They now badly needed them, because they wanted to supply the Red Army on the Eastern Front, which was fighting uh, Germany. And while they were at it, they deposed the man who had ordered their construction, at the huge cost of Iranian lives and capital, but we saw all that in the previous episode. What was the big difference? Well. The fact that in the Second World War, Russia and Britain were allies again. During most of the Qajar era, and during the Reza Shah era too, they were rivals who needed Iran as a buffer. But although it was spared colonization, Russian and British entrepreneurs like Reuter couldn't resist the temptation to take advantage of their uh, weakness. Their respective governance often, though not always, acted as willing spokesmen for big finance. And whenever one power enlarged its influence, the opposite side would balk 
there had to be an equilibrium of sorts, otherwise Iran was no longer viable as a neutral buffer state. The Shah personally scrapped the signature from the Reuters concession, but that was not the end of it. Supported by his government, Reuters managed to get hold of a new concession, only slightly less outrageous than the original. He won the right to create the Imperial Bank of Persia and issue Iranian banknotes. He would also gain a monopoly over all the mineral wealth that had not yet been extracted. Needless to say, Iranians were scandalized by such abdications of sovereignty. Not everyone would have understood the real situation, since for the sake of appearances, the Shah's portrait would still remain on the banknotes. But that also meant that he would be held responsible, by many, for the monetary troubles that were yet to come. And these were significant. For instance, unlike most important currencies, the Iranian one was still based on silver. So when the price of silver collapsed, this led to runaway inflation, as well as serious problems for a treasury that still got its earnings in silver while it had to pay off its debts in gold. Many other concessions were to follow, too many to sum up here, and all of them weakened Persian economic agents. As Iran became integrated into the world economy, farmers had to produce for export markets. Usually, these were inedible goods such as opium or tobacco. This jeopardized food production. Iran was prone to famine anyway because of its awful infrastructure. If a harvest failed in one region, it was very hard and therefore very expensive to get goods um, to let goods come over from elsewhere. When it got there, uh, the food I mean, it was unaffordable for many. This led to a forgotten famine in which up to a sixth of the Iranian population perished. Fewer peasants meant even less food production. If the underground canals or canats were not properly maintained, then the land was no longer fit for agriculture, which led to more famine. General malnutrition weakened people's immune systems, rendering them more vulnerable to pandemics, and so on and so on. Better roads or railways might have enabled some food relief and kept prices lower. This might have saved lives, but that didn't fit the geopolitical function of Iran. Now, there were Iranians who profited from the changing economy, notably those who bought the land that the crown so eagerly sold to earn some cash. Many of these landowners, often nobles or even high clerics, were accused of holding their grain to get a higher price. And that while the poor were dying in the streets. Some reportedly even resorted to cannibalism. That led to a breach of confidence between the elite and the common man or woman, to say the least. And the same goes for the Shah. Though he did order to hand out food, and that was probably not so much he could have done to ameliorate the suffering anyway, it didn't look good that he kept spending so much on luxury in these conditions. He even made an elaborate trip to Europe in the same period, can you imagine? It's often difficult for common people to put together an organized resistance against their government unless they got a significant portion of the elite on their side. And slowly but surely, the concessions would start to eat away at the profits of the wealthier classes. Something broke between the elite and the Shah when he granted another large concession to a foreign businessman, this time over the lucrative tobacco trade. This one would antagonize a large part of the elite, 
because landowners and merchants depended on the expanding tobacco trade, and some were doing very well thanks to it. They stood to lose it all to a foreigner. It also annoyed the clergy. The Ayatollahs had traditionally been seen as part of the establishment, and rightly so. They always stood by the Shah, they supported his wars, and often became rich through royal patronage, or through the side gigs they got in return for handing out proper judgments. But the clerics also depended on financial contributions from the bazaar merchants. These people had already lost much of their business to unfair competition from Europeans. The introduction of modern banks been bad news for their informal money-lending circuit, but the prospective loss of the tobacco trade was the drop that overflowed the bucket. Some clerics and merchants controlled tobacco plantations themselves, and they took the lead in organizing a big protest. This was in effect the first time that a coalition of clerics and bazaaris would form a political front. They would continue to stand together during the entire Pahlavi era, when they both felt victimized by government policy. Their alliance would only weaken after the Islamic Revolution, because the clerics then got a hold of many of the state's resources and were no longer dependent on contributions from the bazaar, which lost much of its economic importance to the Boniats anyway. But in the meantime, this alliance was the most important in Iranian politics, and it was the tobacco revolt of the 1890s that would cement it. The way they went about it shows striking similarities with the methods that Gandhi would use decades later. Non-violent action and public disobedience. Like Gandhi would encourage the Indians to boycott British clothes and make, them make uh, their own instead, so one of the Iranian revolt's clerical leaders declared a fatwa against smoking. He declared that to smoke under such circumstances was tantamount to combating the imam of the age. Soon the streets lay littered with broken water pipes. The action brought great influence to the Ayatollah in question, as a great many people would line up behind him during Friday prayer. Quite a show of force. Bowing before the pressure, the Shah repealed the monopoly. Alas, as with the Reuter concession, this cancellation came at a high price, quite literally. To pay the compensation, the Shah would have to borrow yet another outrageous amount of money from the Imperial Bank of Persia, which was controlled by the British. The interest rate was set at no less than 6% over 40 years. Not long after, Iran, now nearly bankrupt, had to get yet another giant loan from Russia this time to pay off his older British loans. Desperate to secure another loan from Russia, Iran had to farm out what was left of its customs revenue. Unlikely as it sounds, the customs would henceforth be administered by people from my own little country, Belgium. And, I'm afraid to say, they would not be popular. Under the Belgian administration, customs duties doubled. By the way, it's of course not a coincidence that the two large creditors were also the empires next door, jostling for influence. Persia may have been nominally free, but it was clearly on the road to a double debt slavery. All this was fatal to the Shah's long-suffering prestige. The Shahs had always claimed, in grandiose terms, to be the protectors of Iran and of Shiism. Such claims looked ever more moot. Military prowess had always been important as a form of legitimacy for Persian rulers. 
The humiliating military defeats against the Russians and the British now made a mockery of that. When the holy city of Karbala rose in revolt against the Ottomans in Iraq and half the inhabitants were massacred in revenge, the Shah couldn't do a thing either. So much for his claims of protecting Shiism. And at home, tens of thousands of the Shah's protected subjects ended up in the slave markets of Central Asia. There, the local ulama had declared that Shiites, unlike true Muslims, were halal targets of enslavement. Add to that an endless sellout of sovereign rights that no self-respecting state could agree to, and you can see that there was not much left of the Shah's legitimacy in the eyes of his subjects. Even worse was the disrespect he got from Europe. At first, the Europeans had still had a certain amount of respect, or at least a certain fascination for the Shah, who behaved with dramatic decorum and invoked memories of imperial greatness. But as they themselves became more powerful, and it became more and more plain that the so-called King of Kings was at their mercy, they became less and less inclined to treat him as an equal. They became bolder in their demands, caring ever less what the Iranians might think. For instance, when the Shah visited Russia, it was demanded that his female consort would appear at public meetings unveiled. Not unlike during the unveiling policy of Reza Khan, this filled the Iranian delegation with dread. Not necessarily because they had personal objections, although they probably did. Above all, they were aware of the scandal that this would cause at home if word got out about it. The Russians couldn't care less. Hardly a hospitable attitude towards a royal guest, wouldn't you say? Although this is just a symbolic episode, admittedly, it is also a revealing one. The Europeans were feeling more and more superior. Consequently, while they avoided doing anything that might provoke their opponent in the great game, they still squeezed anything they could out of the helpless country Iran. Little wonder that Britain has such a bad name in the country still, and then the worst was still to come. But we mustn't forget that at the same time, workers in the satanic mills were hardly better off than the deplorable Iranians. And the same goes for the serfs or former serfs of Russia. If most people had been fine, it would not have been ripe for communism shortly after. It's often the same people that exploited their own countrymen who would also exploit a foreign country like Iran. It's not unfair that Iranians tend to make a distinction between hostile governments and their citizens, as I'm sure many in the West do as well, by the way. It was around this time, however, that the Iranians started to make clear that they weren't going to take it anymore. There had always been localized protest, but things like the spreading of the telegraph enabled actions to be coordinated on a national scale. That would be a big problem for a government with limited military powers that could easily get overstretched and had no way of quickly moving from one trouble spot to the next. The tobacco revolt was just a start. In the early 20th century, the public anger would culminate in an extraordinary event, the one we commenced the previous episode with, the Constitutional Revolution. Infected by British influences, the idea grew that the ruler had no right to rule arbitrarily. The fact that he was making a mess of things probably helped this notion gain ground. It started off in 1905, when large crowds came out to demonstrate the closing of the Bazaar of Tehran. The event was triggered by the government's own policies. Iran imported much more than it exported. 
trade deficit worsened the fall of the currency and prices crashed through the roof. The government, looking for a scapegoat, accused merchants of manipulating the price for their own profit, and so that justice would be seen to be done, they openly tortured a few respected bazaar traders. Apparently, they used the humiliating method of bastinado, caning the soles of their feet. But it was the entire merchant community that would feel humiliated by this treatment. Not totally unlike with the tobacco protests, the bazaar leaders demanded that the ulama take their side. Those who did left the capital for a nearby shrine, where large multitudes would gather in protest. Again, there were calls for non-cooperation and Gandhi-like peaceful resistance. Not fighting, but buying local clothes, that was the true jihad, was the message. After further ex escalation, the Shah felt obliged to accept the constitution that would remain in place, at least in principle, until 1979. That's not to say that it hadn't long been hollowed out by then. The Pallavis, as we saw, treated it as little more than a piece of paper. The original idea was to limit the dictatorial powers of the ruler, which was considered one of the main reasons for the country's subservience to foreign powers, not without reason, as we have seen. Instead, the constitution instated a council of elected deputies, the Mailis. The fundamental goal behind the whole revolution was not so much to install Western-style democracy, it was instead to get rid of the suffocating embrace of Western powers. So it should come as no surprise that the Iranians avoided using the vocabulary of Western political institutions. So, for instance, instead of talking about a constitution, they would speak of a fundamental law. In essence, though, it came down to the same thing. And inevitably, there were European influences seeping in. The constitution of my own country apparently served as an inspiration, which is apparent in the fact that it worked to the advantage of the rich entrepreneurial and merchant classes, who after all had been the drivers of the revolution. But it was certainly no matter of copy-paste. There was a vivid open debate, and as a result, the fundamental law had many Iranian accents. Interestingly, the original idea was for a council of high clerics to be convened that would judge whether laws were in accordance to the Sharia. Although this didn't become reality, it's a clear precursor to the current system, in which the so-called Guardian Council has a comparable right of supervision. Now, there have been few revolutions in history that failed to provoke a counter-revolution. So too with this one. The Shah had approved the instatement of a constitution and attended the first session of the Mailis, but he had done this literally in his dying days. His son had no intention of accepting this new reality, and it was obvious whom he could turn to for assistance. The British lived in a democracy themselves, so they could perhaps be expected to be open to the idea of Persian democracy, but there was no ambivalence on the part of Tsarist Russia which was itself the epitome of absolute monarchy at the time. But even the British were less enthusiastic than you might perhaps assume. For they understood that the real cause of the revolution was the fact that the Iranians were so fed up with foreign influence, including theirs. They had profited from the fact that the Shah and his courtiers were easily corruptible. A popular assembly might be harder to manipulate. In 1907, the two neighboring superpowers concluded a deal that gave them each an official sphere of influence in Iran. 
Russia would reign supreme in the north, Britain in the south. Only the middle part would serve as a neutral buffer zone still. This was a sure sign that the old rivalry of the great game was making way to a new alliance against the likes of Germany. So from the start, things looked pretty grim for the new regime. In the meantime, parliamentarians didn't dare to make drastic policy changes because they didn't want to give the already hostile British and Russian troops on their borders an excuse to intervene. Establishing a national bank would not be welcomed by British big finance, for example, and imposing conscription would anger the Russians, who through the Cossack Brigade in effect dominated the Iranian military. Even the dictatorial Sultan Abdul Hamid II of the Ottoman Empire put his weight behind the Shah and the counter-revolutionary forces, as he also grappled with demands for restriction of his powers. The Shah also found allies in the elites, which had profited from the old arbitrary decision-making. Like nobles, but also well-connected high clerics, who declared that to even approach the Miley's building was a grave sin, let alone setting foot in it. Such men could use their still formidable financial and political heft to cause unrest and violence in the streets. It all reminds one a bit of the situation after the first successes of the Arab Spring. Strengthened by all this support, the Shah chose to fight the revolutionaries head-on. He left his palace and prepared for combat. In 1908, thousands of Cossacks encircled the parliament building. And then, when fierce fighting broke out, they simply bombarded it. After that, the entire neighborhood of the Mailis was pillaged in an attempt to frighten the people into submission. Revolutionary leaders were arrested. Newspapers closed down. All looked set for a restoration. But there was more resistance than anticipated. It came most of all from the vigilantes of Tabriz in the Azerbaijani-dominated periphery. As these makeshift resistance armies came to master the dark art of urban warfare, they managed to gain the upper hand. During the expanding civil war, civilians were not spared. The fact that Russian troops crossed the border probably rallied many Iranians behind the resistance. Cossacks, who surrendered, were absorbed by them too. By 1909, the constitutionalists victoriously announced the abdication of the Shah at the site of the gravely damaged Mailis in Tehran. It was an astonishing success, given their modest, modest means and the level of improvisation that was needed. After all, troops from different peripheral regions often didn't even share a language. Equally impressive was the relative lack of retaliation against those who had collaborated with the reactionaries. A noted exception was a high cleric who had acted as their mouthpiece. Contrary to the usual immunity that such people enjoyed, he was hanged from the gallows. One might see this as a sign that the privileges of the well-connected ulama would soon come under attack something that would be all apparent under the Pallavis. Alas, the second Mailis would prove to be even more divided than the first one. The same provincial fighters who had come to liberate the capital became a threat to its peace and stability. Revolutionary factions vied for power, and since they refused to lay down their arms, the infighting soon turned bloody. By the time the dust had settled, landowners and bureaucrats were in the driver's seat, and would remain so for the rest of the constitutional period. 
the self-serving squabbling of the parliamentarians lost them much credit with the general public, which saw few improvements in their daily lives. Also, it soon appeared that the representatives had been right in thinking that to make radical changes would provoke Russia and Britain. They contacted the US, asking to send an advisor to help put the country's finances in order. It would be the first serious American involvement in Iran, and it was a very benign one, for the man they sent, William Shuster, proved to be very competent, and he took his job, or rather his mission, extremely seriously. The British and the Russians were not amused, however, for any financial improvement would make Iran less dependent on their loans, and that they could not allow. Soon after Shuster's arrival, the deposed Shah returned to Iran aboard a Russian ship. Aided by Turkmen tribal forces, he then launched an attack on the capital. Despite panic breaking out, the leaders of Iran called upon all troops they could muster in time, and these managed to defeat the invaders and drive the Shah back to his ship. Now with a bounty on his head, dead or alive, he didn't consider another attempt to retake his throne. Now, after such a bummer, you might think the Russians would just pretend like the whole thing never happened. Well, guess again, they demanded an apology. What for, you ask? Good question. The answer, tellingly, is rather far-fetched. Shuster, now Iran's treasurer, had been authorized to impound the assets of the Shah's main co-conspirators. One of them had loaned money from a Russian bank, apparently, and now the bank considered his residence to be collateral. The Russians also claimed that the perpetrator enjoyed capitulatory rights as their protégé, so they took offense for impounding uh, with the impounding of his property, or so they claimed, unconvincingly. The Iranians, however, wisely swallowed their pride and swiftly apologized. But that was clearly not the true purpose of the so-called outrage from Russia. For there soon followed another ultimatum, and this time it was backed by Britain. The demand now was that the capable Shuster would be removed and that he would not be replaced by another foreigner without their consent. In other words, how dare you appoint someone capable to administer your own affairs, well knowing how much we profit from their current mismanagement. Even more unbelievably, the government had to pay an indemnity to cover the cost of the Russian troops that were occupying parts of its territory, looting, killing, raping and maiming civilians as they went. Unsurprisingly, the Iranians reacted like an exploding volcano, and if I may say so, rightly so. People protested loudly against Chester's forced departure. There were even famous poems composed in his honor. It's funny to think that an American must have been the most popular man in Iran at that point. The Mailis, under stark pressure from the populace, voted against accepting the ultimatum, but the fearful government decided to do so nevertheless. Alas, again to no avail. The Russians now occupied the entire north of the country, their self-declared zone of influence, where they would terrorize the population for years to come. They also hurt their religious feelings by hanging the revered high cleric of Tabriz, on Ashura of all times, and then they left him to rot for days. The shrine of the eighth imam, the holiest in the land, was bombarded and then plundered. 
It's hard to think of something that would make the Iranians more angry than that. The British, for their part, used the pretext of unrest to occupy their zone of influence in the South. They needed to protect their interests, you see. The democratic experiment was important and remarkably enduring, but in hindsight, as soon as the British-Russian rivalry gave way to an alliance against Germany, its fate was sealed. Iran was ripe for being torn to pieces and totally annexed. Unless something spectacular and unexpected would happen. And indeed there did appear such a deus ex machina, the communist revolution in Russia. The Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar, took Russia out of the Allied camp and out of Iran. That left only the British in place. And after the World War, they had other priorities than to absorb Iran into their empire, which offered Reza Khan a chance to reunite the country and found his own dynasty. For more on that, please listen to the previous episode. So how should we look back on the Qajar era? It's tempting to see it as a time of regression, want and humiliation. And the Qajars are understandably regarded as feeble rulers because of it, in contrast to the potent Reza Khan. But now that we know how it all happened, more or less, was there really so much that the Qajars could have done differently? Sure, something like the Reuter concession did not need to be signed, but I get the feeling that a lot of things would have to have gone very differently before you could see a totally different outcome. As I said at the beginning of the episode, the circumstances that allowed Iran to modernize under the Pahlavis were completely absent during the long 19th century. The way I see it, with much stronger powers conspiring to keep Persia down, any attempt at modernization or expansion was probably doomed to failure. Considering this, perhaps the Qajars didn't do such a terrible job after all. For at least Persia was never formally colonized, unlike most of the rest of the world. Nevertheless, both contemporaries and later generations saw this period as one of humiliation and unfair treatment by foreigners. It watered the seeds of paranoia that had been planted long before, as we will yet see. Given how harshly and unfairly Persia was treated by Europeans during the 19th century, we should not be surprised to find mistrust. And that's even disregarding later betrayals like the fall of Mossadegh or the invasions during the world wars. It is unsurprising that the regime would try to capitalize on this history of humiliation. In this regard, just for the heck of it, might I put forward an awkward question, without giving any answers. Is it, by definition, a good thing that people learn and remember their history? Because if we delve into our past, we can all find reasons for hating other peoples. My own country, for instance, was once invaded by the Dutch, the French, the Germans, the Spaniards, the Austrians, the Romans, the list goes on. Now luckily, in my country, history lessons are not used to stoke resentment, not for the moment at least. But in many countries, especially in the third world, where the wounds are still fresh and the results still impact everyone's lives, history does anger people. An Iranian history teacher does not need to lie or exaggerate the injustices of the past to make his pupils shiver with indignation. It's enough to tell the truth. And it is the same in many countries, by the way. 
but at least I hope that this essential part of truth is not left out, that common people in Western Europe were exploited at the time too, and the people responsible are long dead anyway. So if you're angry about what happened a hundred years ago, which living person can you justly be angry, angry with? When at the end of the inglorious Qajar era, Iranians contemplated their recent history, of course they were angry with Europe. But there were also those who looked for the root cause of Iran's misery somewhere else. Some people didn't blame outside powers for taking advantage of Iran's weakness. They asked themselves what was at the basis of that weakness to begin with. Some of them came to the conclusion that the fault lay with the Iranian traditions themselves. To give you an idea, I want to cite you a few pieces from a famous poem by a poet named Bahar, or rather from a translation of the poem, of course. Poems, by the way, have long been very popular and important in Iran. It's important to note. Now, here goes, quote, The black smoke that arises from the roof of the motherland, it is from us what befalls us. The burning flames that flare from, from left and right, it is from us what befalls us. Even if we are at our last gasp, we should not complain of the stranger. We shan't quarrel with the other, but complain of ourselves. This is the core of the matter. It is from us what befalls us. We detest history, geography and chemistry. We are alien to philosophy. But every madrasa is clamoring with he said and I say. They say Bahar, that's the poet, is enamored of the West, body and soul, or he is a crusading infidel. We do not dispute, for it is self-evident from this point. It is from us what befalls us. End quote. Now, if this episode has shown anything, I think, it's that the poet is judging his people way too harshly. There were other reasons for what befell Iran. And yet, the poem, I think, neatly sums up the attitude of the Pahlavi era, at least among the new elite. This may be the most important legacy of the Qajar period. What happened under the Pahlavis was for a large part a direct reaction to it. Like the poem, it was in some ways an overreaction, I think. We've seen that Reza Sr. was obsessed with modernization, centralization and secularization. Now, on the surface, these may seem like personality traits, but just think of what Reza Khan and his countrymen had witnessed during their own lifetime. They had found Persia divided by ethnic and court rivalries, held back by the self-serving actions of clerics, nobles and tribal chiefs. Against this background, building a strong centralized state looks like the logical goal to strive for. Was it also part of Reza's personality? Absolutely. But what we think of as our deepest personal thoughts are often shaped by history, whether we know it or not. Thank you so much for listening and for your patience. I hope to talk to you soon. Bye.